Hello and welcome to Grubbing in the Filth with me, Tom Sharp. What is it that first attracted me to animals which are pale, physically unimpressive and yet to reach their potential? That, I'm afraid, is a mystery. Nevertheless, I've become increasingly preoccupied with larval life. This whole issue around larval life, this sort of semantic and philosophical issue, is one that I covered back in the Dragonfly episode, and it's one that I'll recap in the bulk of this episode, but let me give you the gist early doors. When we say fly, we rarely mean maggot. When we say beetle, we rarely mean grub. We think of larval forms, immature forms, as precursors and as separate. They're thought of as the thing that comes before the thing that matters. But that's not right. The larval animal counts. It is the animal, it's a a life stage. Metamorphosis is an odd thing for us to think about because we don't go through it. And so I think that we make a few big errors in looking at what it means to metamorphose. One conception of the process tells us that metamorphosis is a transition between two fundamentally separate animals, which it's not. But this idea is supported in our language. Maggot becomes fly, grub becomes beetle, like I said. Another way of understanding metamorphosis is to view it as a sort of metaphorical attainment of the sublime, as the greedy and the spurious caterpillar finally transitions into the heavenly butterfly. But I won't have it. Maggot is fly, one and the same. But within that life, that life of the maggot slash fly animal is a transformative process which we can't really reconcile to our own experience of the world. What is that transition like, I wonder? Like puby, perhaps, and, and then some. It's my vague and unsupported belief that we don't give enough attention to larval animals because we see them as the thing that comes before the thing that matters. So in this episode, let's take a look at some larval animals. Let's grow and further our understanding and our appreciation for larval animals. Like lovely maggots, let's develop together. As part of my journey to learn more about larval forms, I spoke with Dr. Erica McAllister, a heavy hitter and entomological star whose work I greatly admire. I wanted to ask her about the diptera, the flies, but I wasn't so bothered about the showy and ostentatious adult forms. And so I had the great pleasure to talk with Erica about maggots. That word, maggot, is actually more specific than you might think, but we'll get onto that. Also, even if maggot is the wrong word to use, it's going to be the episode title, and no one can stop me because it's my podcast and I do what I please. So I'm thrilled today to be able to say that I'm joined by, well, it's a big list, right? Entomologist, fly ambassador, curator, author, uh, Dr. Erica McAllister. Erica, how are you today? I'm marvellous, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, we've spoken just before about my audio circumstances, so I'll run the listeners very, very quickly through the fact. Um, there's building work next door. Don't know what it is. It's been going on for a year. Um, <laughs> we have posited that it could be some kind of illegal or... Um, immoral. Immoral. Um, sort of murder-adjacent building project, but we, we just don't know. So we have to hope that this podcast but you suggested that I commit to this recording the fact that something's been going on we don't know what it is well hopefully after this recording you'll have more so when they start appearing you'll understand what's going on see this is and this is exactly why I've reached out (laughs) thanks Um, because of the smell because of No, it, it, that, that's not the case. But but yeah, I do want to talk about maggots. I've become weirdly, weirdly preoccupied with maggots recently, which is not a thing that I ever thought I'd, 
know, I was a cool guy once, but here, here we what are. What are you saying, mate? No, well, no, it's not that, right? So you're a professional entomologist and you have, it's in your business to, but I'm just, I'm just sat on the bus, glassy eyed thinking about maggots and that's not a good, well, maybe it is. You know, no, I sure think they, it's a great thing. Well, we're going to learn a bit about maggots today. But before we do that, maybe, can you sort of catch me up? What's been your personal and professional relationship with invertebrates then? <laughs> so I met this uh, snail when I was very, no. <laughs> um, I, um, I've been working with insects from okay. all of my academic life. Um, but um, obviously, as a child, I was quite fascinated, as I think most people are. I guess the difference with me is I didn't put my childish things behind. I took them and ran with them. And I'm fascinated by the natural world. You, you can't not be really. And the thing is, these creatures, these small things that most people ignore, dominate it. And so your garden is is overwhelmed with such things going on, such intricacies, that it just gets me really quite excited. I'm really nosy. So, you know, I'm paid to be nosy, which I think is really good. So, um, and why fly specifically? Well, they just answer every question and they are everywhere even in space you know so it's it's like if I want to know something you could just turn to them and say okay what's going on in this environment how is the impact of this climate change on those specific things all of these questions you can ask the flies and I should clarify really really quickly um we put the flies in space yes yep <laughs> no, no, I, I, I did interview, I was saying, I interviewed a woman from NASA who runs or used to run the fly lab. And I just had an, an amazing image in my head of flies in little suits. And obviously, that's not the case. But yes, we, they were the first animals we sent into space in 1947. Yes, of course. I know. And we've been sending them up ever since. Well, um, I'm sure they're grateful. And to what degree, being, being a a fly expert and being someone who is so like compelled by flies. Flies are animals that we don't need to seek out particularly. They do come to us. Yeah, we're quite disgusting as species. <laughs> um, we have revolting habits and uh, our own personal hygiene is, uh, yes, often quite bad. But um, don't take it personally. That's the way we are. That's fine. And so there's a lot of what we call anthophilic. So these are, these are human-loving species. So, however... The vast, vast majority don't like of us course. and won't come anywhere near us. Of course. No. But I did wonder, how does, given that, you know, blue bottles come in the house and you see gnats and mosquitoes around and things like that, how does being a, a, a fly person, does that change that interaction? You know, when a, when a fly turns up in the home, is that a very different experience for you than it would be for me? Well, okay, I want you to just take a step back and think, you've just got a wild animal flown into your living room. This creature is existing in this three-dimensional space. I can barely get off the sofa, and here it is flying round and being able to observe, being able to process, being able to move, being able to do all these things right in front of me. And it's, like be, it's a slight privilege in a way to be able to kind of study them, to look at that, to look at every bit. And the more you get to realise how they're doing it, the more, I don't know, magical it becomes. It's less, you know... You just get to see more. So, but there's also the sneaky stuff because I love knowing what they get up to. So it's like, <laughs> I know what you're, that flies up to. And yep, you're looking for a lady, aren't you? And you're like, yes. And so it's great. So 
I mean, it's a nightmare for my friends because they realise that they can't harm anything around me. But, you know, it's it's a good creature. But I think that, that's, the, that's the, the magic of little buzzy invertebrate business because, because these are animals that are doing complicated things under our noses, right? And they are... They are doing all all this, and and they, they they speak of this vast, complicated world that we are kind of you less or sort of shut off to, and that if we can learn to appreciate that, we we gain access to so much more, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm quite um, obsessed by bio-inspired products at the moment, and how we can look at the natural world and think about its form and how we can utilize it, and just. You think about the fly's mouth part, it's this drinking straw, so how we can use that. You think about how the eyes of a fly, so it's got thousands of photo units. It's taking all these images that it can process so much quicker. It hears with its antennae, and we, we're thinking about the different hearing mechanisms in flies and how we can develop little microphones or, you know, um, hearing aids and things like that. Every bit, how it flies. So being able to process so quickly those images and then transforming that into a movement. They are professors next door at Imperial are working on jump jet technology based on the hovering of flies and things like that. I just think how to actually land and then not land, that is a problem like upside down. These, these things can operate in such an amazing space. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned just then, you mentioned you know, flies have uh, a straw-like mouth and you mentioned the eyes and, and, and things like this. And... Maybe it'll be good to to begin before we get into sort of more markety business. The f- flies, the fly, which is this this great order. What is it that defines a fly? Ah, well, see, I'm going to tell you what makes a fly, and then I'm going to tell you that they don't all do that because flies are sneaky. Okay. So diptera is the scientific name for flies. So diptera, two wings. So <laughs> I was going to say all flies have. Uh, one pair of wings. That's not true because some flies don't have any wings. Some flies start off with wings and then rip their wings off. Uh, It's just bonkers all the way through. And instead of the second pair of wings that most insects have, they have this pair of halters. These are balancing organs. So they're they're gyroscopic. So they enable it to stabilise and they they are able to detect minute changes in the air around them and they convey that so think about them as like gear sticks or steering sticks so they they are able to manipulate so they have the halters one pair of wings and all adult flies have suctorial mouth parts um again not all of them do Uh, some don't have them at all which is quite entertaining so yes so you cannot be bitten by an adult fly so when they talk about being bitten by a mosquito now it can slice you Mm -hmm. and pierce you and you know, lap at your pooling blood and everything exciting like that. But it actually can't bite because it doesn't have a jaw. People talk about being bitten by things like horseflies, right? Yeah, no, they've got they've got blades. Right. They are amazing. So it's just a female that's um, needing the blood meal because she's the mother. Um, so she's doing her best for her, her offspring, her future offspring. And uh, her mouthparts are amazing. Horsefly mouthparts are amazing. Um, some of them because they are really important pollinators as well uh, an issue that we don't think about with flies but yeah so as well as having a blood meal she will also have pollen for most of it so this is why they're very good and all the males are, are vegetarians oh. apart from the tetsy fly mm. and that's a different story 
I, there's always one. <laughs> Every time I make a general sweep statement, uh, statement it's like, oh yeah, apart from naturally, those yeah. Ah, oh, nature. <laughs> it's almost as if it wasn't put there for us. I know. I know. Perhaps it would be worth, given the nature of this episode, to recap briefly the kinds of development that exists within the insect world. Let's recap what it means to be hemometabolous, holometabolous, and ametabolous. The diptera, the fly order, which we're discussing today, are holometabolous animals. These are animals that undergo a pupal phase as part of their development, with a significant transformation between the larval form and the adults. The pupal phase is that still and sedentary transitional phase, which is most obviously exemplified in the transition we see in the Lepidoptera, butterflies, ants, and so on and so forth. Hemometabolism describes the development of insects like cockroaches and true bugs and mantids and so on. This development lacks a pupal phase, and there's no significant transformation point between a clearly distinct larval form and the adult. Hemometabolous insects hatch looking pretty similar to the adult form, only smaller and wingless. Through a series of molts, they then develop into the adult form. The immature forms are referred to as nymphs. Ametabolous insects essentially do not undergo metamorphosis. These insects and insect-adjacent animals do increase in size, but they don't develop wings or change in any significant way. We have this order, the diptera, which are the flies, and yep. they have these these things that make them flyish. They have their whole tears in their mouth parts. The adults. Well, precisely, right? Because yep. when we talk about insects, we say a fly, and we say a beetle, and we say bug, and we tend to be talking about, well, bugs are a strange example, but we tend to be talking about an adult form, right? And yeah. I'm a little bit put out on behalf of, of the larval forms at the moment because it's not as if the larval form is is a brief part of, the, of an insect's life necessarily. No. And there's nothing really beyond our sort of, the way we've changed our interpretation and we've shaped our interpretation based on our understanding of ourselves, I guess, that the maggot or the grub or the what have you is no less valid an animal than than the adult right well it is it is the animal <laughs> so that's the, it's, it's, the, it's funny because people talk about that they will talk about like the caterpillar and the butterfly and it's like no the butterfly butterfly is the whole yes. thing so they it's our we have a weird way and i think it's because we don't go through this complete metamorphosis we don't see this massive change which 85 percent of the animals on the planet do yes you know, and, and so, and the larval stage is the feeding mm. stage. It's critically important. That is when it's laying down its reserves to enable it to have often a very short adult stage that is just basically dispersal and reproduction. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. it. Most of your life, you just eat. It's well, that's the, it's, it's not to go into my personal life too much, but that's the stage I'm currently at, you know. Yes, I think yeah. COVID was like my pupil stage. <laughs> Given that the way we, we look at larvae, 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 is that generally speaking, we, we do imagine it as this thing that comes before the bit that counts, which I'm not really, I'm not having it because I think they're really interesting. Is there anything that makes a fly maggot particularly flyish? So, first off, maggots only describe about, oh, I don't know, uh, a third okay. of them. Okay, so what we do, because in flies, traditionally, they used to be split into two suborders. And this was the, how we split them was on their adult form, their antennae. So you think of a blue mm-hmm. bottle, it's got this lovely little round head, it's got this tiny little, yeah. I call them sausages, 
as for its antennae. But then you think about a mosquito and you think about that really long, beautiful, elegant. Yeah. So we used to split them like that. And their larvae were quite different as well. So the higher flies, uh, those are your, those are the ones like the blue bottles, the house mm-hmm. fly. They have the proper maggot form that we think about. Whereas the larvae of mosquitoes and gnats and all of those, they have a very different form. They're, they're, because their larvae have head capsules. So as we progress through the ditra, they lose this head capsule from a very obvious one to a semi uh, head capsule to no as all you have basically for the, the more advanced ones, the maggots you call them, is this uh, pharyngeal mouth part, which kind of is just like a claw that comes out of their mouth and scrapes whatever substrate they're feeding mm. on. And that's, you'd, you'd sort of think of, so when we think of, of, of a maggot, this sort of slightly, um, looks like a little bit of intestine. It's a little bit kind of pale, wormy looking business, right? <laughs> That's when yeah. we talk about those, that's the one that goes with the blue bottles and things like that. And the mosquitoes yeah. and the gnats and things, they have quite a different form of maggot. Uh, of, sorry, yes. of larvae. Of larvae, yes. So, uh, and this is it's interesting because a lot of the ditcher larvae live in aquatic right, of course. systems. The little so, wiggly guys. Whereas little wiggly guys or girls. And uh, so they, they don't, we don't know yet because a lot of them won't develop genitalia till they get to the pupil stage. That's why it's fun. Um, so obviously they know what they're going to become. But then they are like the higher flies, these will live in the soil or in bodies or in feces and everything exciting mm-hmm. like that. I was having a look through The Secret Life of Flies, your wonderful book, and you talked about the head capsule. So that, that's roughly, it's, it's, it's what it sounds like, right? It's, it's a bit on the animal that looks like a head as opposed to it having just sort of mm-hmm. tapering form with a little scrapey mouth. A cephalopharyngeal skeleton. So is that the head capsule? Yes. That's, yeah, so that's the head. And if you look with those, the very primitive larvae, a lot of them are filter feeding. So they have, uh, they have these mouths, they are, you know, and a lot of them would chew on vegetation because it's a larval stage. Whereas they become more scraping with the higher flies. So they're, they're you know, that's what they're doing there. This skeleton, this jaw-like process is the bit that they can evert and use to scrape and then it gets retracted back into their their head region. You can now make donations to help offset the running costs of this podcast. If you're enjoying Grubbing the Filth and want to make a donation like a benevolent Victorian, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash grubbingcast or you can also write a brief message if you so wish. Any donations are truly appreciated. Thank you. To the layperson, a fly larvae is kind of a featureless thing. It's like, like I said, it's a squirming thing. It's a little pale sack. It's just a sort of thing. And I was wondering, on closer inspection, does that does that hold up, or do these animals have no, no, more to no. them than that? <laughs> Much more to them. So again, let's start off with your primitive flies, crane flies. Go into your garden. Go and find the, the larval form, the leather jackets. Just dig up some soil. It's world soil day today, which is quite popular. Happy world soil. Go and dig up some soil. Yay. Uh, don't look at the head end. Look at the bum end. 
okay, because they have the most extraordinary anal spiracles. Okay, <laughs> some of them look like little fighter pilots with big moustaches with their bubbles. Oh, yes. And this is, you've got to go and look at them. And this is how we identify a lot of the larvae. We, we check out their bumps. Um, and because this arrangement of the spiracles, so they breathe through that, which makes a lot of sense. If you're going to dedicate so much time to feeding, you want to be really breathing in a different way. So they breathe through that as well as spiracles down their, their body. Some of them will have a different level of spiracles, but most of them are just bum breathers. And that changes all the way through. I have a book on the larval form of diptera, and it's, it looks like loads of loads of strange faces, like little tabby yes. faces. Yes, which obviously is not a face. Never trust me if I put a photo of what looks like a smiley face up. It is not going to be that. But as you go through the higher flies, you get to, it's much more like this, there's less going on on the um, exoskeleton. Um, and it becomes, as I described them, as sleeping bags full of vegetable soup. But still, the arrangement of the anal spiracles is distinctive enough to enable us to see what's going on. And in some of the flies, you have these spiracles that are quite elongated, right? Ah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, the classic one is obviously the, the hoverflies. And this is within the, uh, the hoverfly family is surfidae. So you can think about them surfing on the air. But their larvae, some of them have got these most amazing telescopic anal spiracles. And so within two of the subfamilies in the hoverflies, these are the ones that um, we would know the adults because they're like the drone fly, the Batman hoverfly, things like that. Uh, but their larvae live in dank, decaying environments, your compost, the edge of ponds, in tree holes and things like that. And so to enable them to get down into this wonderful food substance, they have this really long spiracle and they can um, extend this spiracle to about three or four times their body length with some of the species. So they can you know, do a deep dive down but still be able to breathe from the surface, which is amazing. Well, it, it speaks to this this suspicion I have about, well, it's not suspicion, it's a confirmed thing, but that, that within the larval forms of flies, within the larval forms of, of all insects, there exists different lifestyles and different specialisations and things like that. And it, it takes me back when I was, during lockdown, actually, I had a little patch of grass where I used to go and read and an animal that I know that you're a fan of, the bee fly, was in, in massive effect at the time. So lots of bee flies about. Lovely little creature, butter wouldn't melt. And then I found out that the bee fly larvae, whilst the bee fly itself is a is a herbivore, the bee fly larvae has some degree of predatory lifestyle, right? <laughs> well, you say predator. We generally call it an ectoparasite. Okay. We think it's an ectoparasite. Uh, yes, it feeds on baby bees, which we kind of lose our press, you know, loveliness <laughs> in that one. And this is true with actually most diptera is that the larval form and the adult form eat different foods. And this is great because this reduces competition. So this is a really good thing. Uh, I hate chocolate, which is great for my partner because it completely reduces all the competition of course, in yeah. our lives that he can eat all of it and I don't. So this is, it makes it, it makes it very, you know, useful to do this sort of thing. So, they, in the larval form, you have predators, parasites, parasitoids, um, some kleptoparasites, what I call. You've got uh, herbivores, sanguivores, decomposers, 
have I have I covered? Uh, they just they are so amazing at getting absolutely everywhere and doing everything. You know, we found them in the deepest caves. We found them at the bottom of lakes. We found them in the most alkaline environments. They they can exist in petroleum pits. <laughs> Some have fed off shoe polish. Uh, they're at the base camp of Everest now. You know, they, they are. They just get themselves everywhere because of this flexibility in form and feeding. Larvae and fly larvae, pretty underrated as animals go. Is that fair to say? Always, always. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't hear enough people screaming about the joy of a maggot in my life, and this needs to change. Let's let's do some screaming then. Let's do some more screaming. If you're enjoying Grubbing in the Filth, come and wallow with me in the horrendous world of social media. You can follow Grubbing in the Filth on Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram, it's at Grubbing in the Filth. And on Twitter, it's at GITF Podcast. You can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, whether it's your own perspective, to share a story, a photo, or what have you. So, yeah, we have the maggot, this, this undervalued, underrated, under under understood thing and within that that group well, no, it's not a group it's 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 a juvenile form right different lives different lifestyles living in different places doing different things it being a juvenile and it looking the way it does well you mentioned it's the feeding stage right and we think of them as these little feeding machines which to a degree they, they probably that's probably fair but these little precursors to an active animal they just exist to feed and exists to be, and it, it lacks kind of agency. And do larvae, you know, do they have agency? Can they can they get about? Can they can they make decisions? Are they oh, are they God. living fulfilling lives? They they could they can remember. So if you hurt them as a larvae, they will remember that stimulus as an adult. So you know something is retained when they go through that metamorphosis to enable them to remember these things, which I think is incredible. And that goes to emphasise the point that it is a continuation, right? It is the same animal throughout. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Swamadam did a great thing there. Um, but it's also, they can move. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, 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 this is how um, we see them as they quickly disappear off from um, a feeding event if they're going to pupate and they will just get out of there. We, um, the whole of the maggot skin... Oh, with a lot of the higher ones, I believe it is, are photosynthesis, uh, photo uh, sensitive. Right. So the ones that are like usually in the dark, if they suddenly come into the light, even if their their backside end comes in, they register this, and so they will try and hide themselves. So there's all sorts of fun things going on, and this is why you could do maggot racing. So you could get a long table, and you could have some maggots at one end, and then you suddenly lift the cover up, and you can race them because they would just quickly try and flee to the shelter. So you just stain your maggots different colours and let them run down the table, as it were, with no leg. But yeah, so they they can very active. And obviously there's a lot of uh, aquatic ones. They go far. And some of them, I love it though, are a bit lazy and they sucker themselves on the back of crabs and uh, like little hell's angels. It's brilliant. They're riding around in the waterways on the back of a crab. So, yes. they have no legs, like you said, I mean, or they have potentially kind of little uh, proto-leg well, type things. some do. Some do. <laughs> Annoyingly, there's a few in the ragionids, the upside-down flies, that they kind of have legs right. in the larval stage, but they're kind of proto-legs. And then coronamids have false legs. 
So there's quite a few false legs, but not like caterpillars. I want us to know more about maggot locomotion. Fondly, I recall having a look at a maggot making its merry way across the lid of a wheelie bin in Highgate. It's one of my standout maggot memories. That maggot appeared to pull itself forward in waves through a kind of contraction, and not an elegant movement that puts one in mind of everyone's favourite, peristalsis. I asked Erica to help me understand this movement, and wondered if it was specific to any particular type of maggot. Oh, they all do. That's how they move. And um, we're developing little robots based on that movement, which is quite fun to think about it. So maggots, or maggots, and also think about this, think about the exoskeleton of a maggot. If this creature can live in our most disgusting filth and not die, how does this happen? So not only do we look at the movement of maggots through these fluids to enable us to think about how we can get nanobots through like biological systems, our body, for example, but we can also think about how we use maggots to actually protect certain things. So the nanostructure of these maggots, it disrupts uh, bacterium, so no bacteria can actually stay on them. So we're thinking about how we can develop this and make these um, structures ourselves to cope like pills and things like that so they can survive many years without going off. It's, it's probably worth acknowledging, you know, that flies do have a, for, for many people, flies are adversarial creatures. And that's, whilst they are interesting animals, they are not necessarily animals that endear themselves to everyone because of things like disease and so on and so forth. With that in mind, one, one form of maggot that is a bit of a showpiece within the fly world is botfly maggots. Mm, and Love them. Love them. Okay, so. Oh, come on. So imagine... <laughs> Well, first of all, the human botfly, Dermatobia hominis, is quite magical in the fact what the adult does. So the botflies are quite chunky, robust flies, okay? They've got beautiful big eyes. They really do. It's like, ah, and most of them are incredibly hirsute. So imagine a bumblebee with more fluff and bigger eyes, and you've pretty much got a botfly. I'm looking them up. Oh, yes. So, yeah. yeah. Mm, Not what I expected. I know, actually. I make you. They're lovely. No. Never expect a bot fly. <laughs> now, Dermatobia hominis, this is a big chunky fly, and it is one of our parasites. Well, it's larvae live in us, so it's a, and it's a parasite. But for it to get to us, it's quite big, it's quite noisy. So instead, this the adult female captures a mosquito or a horsefly or something else that comes to us, and she lays her eggs on them. Right. Then... So how did that evolve? Did this female just sitting around one day went, oh, do you know what? I'll put them on some mosquitoes. They're going up to the human. They take all the risk. And I hope for the best. Yeah. So there's a kind of a, a, a vector, as it were, a little... Yeah, it's tool use. A go- I suppose it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's like, gosh, that is amazing. <laughs> have you, so, you know... No, I haven't had one yet. No, I haven't. Oh, that have you had one? Have I had a bot flight? N- not to my knowledge. Is th- oh, you, you'd know. I think so. Is there? Is that something that you're open to? Oh yeah. It's from in a sort of controlled circumstances. Yeah, I mean, there's no, I mean, apparently they're quite noisy at night when you can hear them munching away. Right. And obviously uh, they defecate, and that may leak out. Mm. But apart from those two things, I see nothing wrong. <laughs> yeah, if if you've if you've gone into this as a sort of willing participant i suppose it's absolutely yeah i i love it the uh the editor of bbc wildlife magazine <laughs> oh, he uh, 
he turned up one day after his honeymoon and his wife forgot one. And so he donated it to the museum, oh, lovely. which was nice. Yeah. Bit of you in the museum. I suppose it is. And, and a, a lovely um, memento, a memento of, of a happy time in your yeah. life. Yeah. To go and revisit when, whenever you please. Have you got any <laughs> Among the Fly Larvae? Any other particular favourites of yours then? Well, you've got the big beasties. Mm-hmm. So the pantothalmids, and these are the timber flies, and their larvae, the size of my small finger. But, and, and the adults, they look like, uh, I don't know, horse flies on steroids. But they are completely vegetarian and quite useless. In fact, the adults probably don't really feed. They have a very short time being an adult. They just have to disperse and reproduce. Whereas the larvae, some of them would take up to five years to develop. So very much like the stag beetle, which has a really nutritiously poor diet of decomposing wood. It's exactly the same as these, these timber flies. So they spend so long munching away. And you can hear them apparently up to two metres away, just munching in a tree. <laughs> oh, oh, they, they're good. Okay, I've remembered another maggot I've got a bit of a soft spot for. Uh, is the uh, arachnocampa is the bioluminescent glowworms in New Zealand. Now, these are chronomids, well, keroplatids, sorry. These are a type of fungus gnat. And they're in their, what they're called, their kidneys, the malfigia. They're not quite kidneys, but, you know, they still they still do clean out waste. And it's in their malfigia tubules, named after the Italian. And these bioluminescent, and this, uh, the the enzyme um, is the same, but it acts on a different looser ring. I think it's that way around. And they they basically fish. Uh, they have these long strands, and they dribble them down. And each they've got loads of little balls on the strands, and each of those balls contains this necrotic digestive enzyme. Yay. And so the moths are flying around the cave going, oh, look at the pretty lights, look at the pretty lights. And then, and obviously do what moths do. They fly to these little predators and they hit this uh, thread and they start dissolving, externally digesting. And then the little larvae's like, brilliant. Mm. And then just like fishes them up. That's quite cool. It's an exciting world, the the larval world of the fly. And it seems like the, the flies must be one of the more, one of the larger orders of insect, right? Mm-hmm. We're, but we're in what's called uh, the dark orders. Okay. So, which I just love. Um, because there's five, me- four mega orders. Mm-hmm. So there's the beetles, the butterflies and moths, the hymenoptera, which the bees, wasps and ants, and us. Okay. I love the way I'm flying now. Yes. And the thing is, traditionally, the beetles and the lepidoptera, the butterflies and moths, have been the most described because they're easy. And uh, you can just look at a butterfly and you can identify it. So they, they've, and, you know, they just flutter around. Same with beetles. They had some big, passionate advocators very early on. Uh, Chaz Daz, as I like to call him, Charles Darwin. And Wallace, you know, very big. But uh, Diptera and Hymenoptera, to an extent, they're small. They're hard. And it's, you know, you do need a microscope and you do need a lot of patience. So we're only just really beginning to describe them truly. So there's about 165,000 described species of fly at the moment. But we think that's a a huge underestimate. I mean, we look at the UK fauna, for example. Uh, There's 4,000 species of beetle, but there's 7,000 species of fly. So we know that 
really we've got to get our ourselves into gear and go out there and start describing more and more of them. Yeah. And presumably, I mean, because given the size of these animals, we're always going to have a degree of ignorance about what they are and in the literal sense, mm-hmm. what they are and, and what they're up to and things like that. Is there any kind of, if people want to rally to that cause and, yeah. and, and get involved in flies and things like that, is that something that, that a lay person can uh-huh. do? Absolutely. And as chair of the Ditches Forum, the UK Society for Studying and Researching Flies, I'm going to plug that Please to do. start with. And it's it's a really brilliant organisation. I mean, a little bias, I understand that. But it's it's full of wonderful people who just want to share and encourage. And we do loads of field trips and we go out and we, we spend time. It's the winter now, so we've retained our overwinter form, which is basically us hidden away in labs, identifying all that we've looked at over the summer period. And this is great. And um, anybody can do this. And in fact, anybody can help full stop by just taking photos. Because we get so many identifications coming through, through um, you know, on, on social media and things like that. And it might seem a bit flippant to some people, but actually that's a data record. And so we can add that data to all our all the other data from museum collections, from our personal observations, everything, to understand like the the emergence times of these insects, how long the adult form is around, what their host plants are, what their host species will stop are. You know, every single person can help us do that. Well, I'd encourage anyone to go and have a go at that. It's it's I think with entomology, um, with people the people who are interested in entomology in my experience are enthusiastic (laughs) about it and passionate about it and just up for up for engaging with it in every way when you want to join in with that world it's a very welcoming and very enthusiastic world to try and kind of latch on to not unlike a botfly you know I, I myself I'm a sort of parasitic aspect of the entomological community I like to think while you're while you're plugging Erica Let's let's plug further. What else? If people want to hear more about flies from you, if people want to learn more what you're up to and stuff yeah. like that. Obviously, I'm going to plug my two books on flies. So one's The Secret Life of Flies, and that is more about the ecology. And then one is The Inside Out of Flies, and that's all about the morphology. That has an entire chapter on larvae. So you can get your head around that, which is great. Um, I've also done loads of radio, so please try and listen into more of that, or I do... Um, gush <laughs> about the much smaller creatures that are after flies so I, uh, yeah there's lots of lots of different ways there's all sorts of different societies etc that you can get more involved and do come and look in the museum collections i mean they're your collections so there's all these amazing things here at the natural history museum we have i think it's 34 million insects right where we have i think you know mm-hmm. give or take give, yeah. the odd million and we and we have quite a few million flies. <laughs> so I have um, some volunteers who are spending a lot of their time going through and databasing and digitizing. And this is great because they're putting all of the information that we've generated online freely available to everyone. This is my ignorance, right? So you work at the Natural History Museum, right, in London. I, I I've been many a time and. So the, the kind of the collections of insects and things like that, to what degree are those public facing? Ah, we think we've got about 1% on display. Right. But that's, yeah, just to... that's quite the percent when you consider the larger, uh, the, the size of the yeah. collection, right? 
Yes. Well, it's about 80 million. Yeah. So, yes. Decent. Decent. <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay. Yeah. Um, there's still loads of it I haven't seen, which is quite exciting. Um, but it's, it's something, it's not a static collection. It's a dynamic collection. We are not like old men with white beards. Well, I might be getting there, but not, you know. And um, so we have, at the moment, I have a researcher from Brazil in, and he's working on describing new species. And then I will, I've, I've got loads of material that I've collected from Romania. And, we, and we've also got some uh, investigations looking at historic DNA. So I'm taking the DNA out of mosquitoes. And this helps us understand past migrations, speciations, insecticide resistance, everything. So there's so much research going on behind the scenes. Fantastic. Well, it's it's such an interesting world. I mean, you know, you are an expert in flies, and yet constantly there are these questions which which you're asking, and this this research to be done, and so many mysteries, I presume, in the in the fly world. I wonder if you could if you could sort of, God willing, one day it's possible, right? But if you could speak to a fly, if you could ask any question of the flies, is there any kind of grand fly adjacent <laughs> question that no, you'd like answering? Go, oh, the fly would go is like, I just want to eat. <laughs> Or uh, are you free tonight? Sure. That would probably be the only thing that flies think about. To be fair, I can't fault either of those. But that's not the, you know, so no, because <sighs> I think it's for us to like discover. I think it's, it's, it's what drives us is being able to, it, I don't, it's like, can you explain how your hand works? Can you explain, you know, all of these things? And I think maybe... Those aren't the questions we should be asking of these creatures. Maybe we should be asking them for more help if there is a question. And there's a, there's a great deal of help they can give us, I'm sure. Yes. Well, they do. They look after us. They pollinate our food. They get rid of our crop pests. They get rid of our dead bodies. They are recycling. They're doing everything. And we really do need these creatures in our lives. Mm. It's, it's a point that I'm trying... Because I feel like so much kind of insect and invertebrate media is concerned with kind of people trying to defend and trying to convince people and 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 win them round these animals. And sometimes I get a bit, sometimes I'd rather just celebrate them and just, just rather talk about them in a way that isn't kind of like human We did a, I did, yeah, absolutely. I did a, a, a wildlife trust. We did a, a big debate uh, with Dave Gorson and two others at the Bumblebee Trust. And we were talking about what we feared for the future and why we should save the insects. And it was highlighted that actually we, we just really like them. We shouldn't always be using them as some sort of ecological service, uh, you know, environmental engineer. We can just like them. Yeah. What, I mean, what value is a cat? Or a panda. Yeah. Oh, don't start me on pandas. Sack them off. Apart from you. Get the flies involved. Yeah, no, well... I do quite like a YouTube video. Of course. So that's the only valid reason for that species. I mean, what is the valid reason for humans? If I was onto paper, write down the pros and cons of humans. Sure. I don't think I don't think that species would survive. No. But so there's there's a lot to to be defended, and there's a lot to say about what flies can do for us and what flies do for us, and 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 kind of yes. the, the the utility of flies in terms of animal feed and and pollination and the technology we can derive from them and, and those are really important things to talk about but like you said i think it's enough just sometimes to say do you know what flies are really really interesting and they knock about all around and just go and have a look at some flies and, and enjoy them oh uh, yes absolutely <laughs> and this is the other, it's no I, I 
I, last summer, or it was two summers ago, my partner, who's a civilian, okay, as though he doesn't really know a lot about flies, but he does now, um, he, there was a fly that had just emerged from its pupil case, okay, so it was just about to um, go through the final stage of metamorphosis, and this little thing had its head blowing up, because they have an airbag to get themselves out of the pupil case, which is great fun. And this is just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So imagine like this, this head thing go, whoa. So he's like, oh my God, what is going on here? And I'm like, oh, you've got to watch this. So I made him sit with this fly on his finger for half an hour. And he watched the head then collapse back into the form that we think about. He then watched the wings get pumped out and harden and go into their space. And he also watched the exoskeleton harden. So from this, this, dank grey colour, this like lacklustre colour, to the bright metallic green that we all associate with blue bottles and green bottles. And that, you know, and he just watched it. He just looked at me and he was like, wow. And it's like, yes, wow. And we can all see that. And that's what I think is amazing, though. Under our noses, there's this amazing thing going on that's called nature. And it's it's not, you know, shut off to us, just the, no. the flies that... They're doing their thing and just have a little look, maybe, because it's yeah, it's it's worth it, you know. It's it's I just I describe I always tell people this I describe your garden as like a nineteen eighties nightclub, <laughs> so it's there's just so much going on. Yes, and it's most of it's quite naughty, mm-hmm. but it's great fun. Yeah, I've, I've got I was trying to think of an amusing comment. I've got nothing, but you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm rattling through all my kind of eighties cultural references, my standpoints, I've got got absolutely nothing. But yeah, you're right. Well, Erica, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk about flies. And as the circular saws rev up next door, I think I'm I'm, I'm going (laughs) to thank you and and let you go. But thank you so much for for spending the time today having a a maggoty chat with me and a a larval chat with me and a flyish chat with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. When we think about insect life, we should not be thinking just about adult insect life. Some people you will have heard distinguish between insects and animals, which is wrong, and not at all fair on our leggy and scuttlesome pals, who peek out from under leaves, raising eyebrows and muttering, pardon me. We know that distinction is wrong, that only certain kinds of animals get to count as animals, so let's not fall into a, a sort of similar trap in thinking that larval forms are somehow lesser than adult forms. They count, and they matter. So many of us who value and care about insect and invertebrate life do so with a strong moral conviction that there is excitement and interest and worth to be found in neglected and underappreciated things. With that in mind, I point you towards the larval forms, the immature insects, who perhaps lack the ostentatious flair of their fully developed selves, but nevertheless count and have their own stories to tell. Grubbing the Filth is written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. My thanks again to Dr. Eric McAllister. You can find Grubbing in the Filth on Twitter at GITF Podcast or Instagram at Grubbing in the Filth. You can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. Thank you.